very simple. Oh, I know. It was in the Boston Globe where this lady said, enumerated a number of great short story writers who have not written any short stories for a while. And you ask and that why, and the same reason is given time after time. Well, I'm writing a novel. And so the short story production dries up. Now, for me, I started with short stories when I was 18. Uh, sold my first one when I was about 20 and produced pretty much nothing but, well, I, I wrote a couple of novels, but they were not accepted and a lot of them were so bad that I didn't even bother to revise them. But the short stories were making money and I got very comfortable with that format and I've never wanted to leave it completely behind. exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is the fear of God. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the fear of God. I hope you're glad to be here. We're glad you're here. The Fear of God is a podcast where we find the holy and the horrific at the intersection of faith and fear, dissecting what scares us to find what saves us. In layman's terms, we take the horror genre and add a bit of a faith spin to it. Uh, talking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse. My co-host, uh, a gentleman, a, a longtime friend, Reed Lackey, he was here a minute ago, but he said something about needing to go smell his lemonade, which is, I don't, I don't, I don't, that's a weird thing to say, to do. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess when life gives you lemons, you, I mean, I've heard of, you know, having lemonade. I, I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to sort of inquire what he's talking about there. Uh, when and uh, presumably if he returns. Um, in the meantime, while he is gone, you know, doing whatever, how, however he's doing, whatever it is he's doing, um, I would uh, implore you to please go leave a rating, leave a review. Um, if you've been with us two episodes, if you've been with us two years, it's crazy that there can be people who have been with us two years and at this point about two and a half years and you have not left a review or a rating yet. Well... Today's your day, friend. So go make that happen. It would be much appreciated by us, and it would just make you feel a little good inside too. Uh, Reed, hey, buddy, you're back. And uh, hello, hello. How I'm are gonna you? ignore what patently ignore what what you said I was doing because we are not gonna go down that rabbit hole again. You know, a couple weeks ago you called him Billy. His name's not Billy. What is his name? Gary. Who's Billy oh, in the story? I, uh, hello, are, are we well met, Fisher boy? I don't know how right. to work on that again. What do you mean who's no, Billy? I don't a... know who Billy is. It's Gary. Gary is the young man. Gary. Gary's the young Gary's the young guy. Okay, now, wow. Dan I mean, is the I, brother, right? Yes, 
Dan is the dead brother. Um, he's smelling. Where he in the not world smelling did I get any more lemonade? I, is this. this is this a Mandela effect moment? Is this a? Uh, I don't know. I just know that when I listened to this story, the child's name was Gary and not Billy. Child's um, name was Gary. All right. But, yeah. uh, but, but you know whether whether Gary or Billy or Lemonade, what you watching? <laughs> what you reading? Oh my god! What you smelling? Oh. Please, please, in no version of this segment do we ever talk about what we're smelling. No, never talk about that. Not, not ever. Do you smell what the rock's cooking? Nope. Nope. I don't. I don't. You know, speaking of wrestling, do you ever play those wrestling games for on the internet? I don't like the recurring, like the running gags. Come on. There was no more perfect way. That was. That was pretty. That was great. kind of impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank, You're very impressed you. with yourself. You you were when we were playing the video games too. <laughs> <laughs> you were impressed with your savvy ability to button mash and you know just deflate all of the all of the hopes and dreams of. When you say button mash, the way you say that makes it sound like I didn't know what I was doing and there was no tactical. Oh, you clearly of... you clearly knew what you were doing. Disman- right. Dismantling my self confidence. It's so weird piece that piece. a week ago we were talking about this, and now here we are a week later. Yeah, you talking won't about let it go. Thing. Won't let it go. Every I mean, it's just thing, you know, it's good. It's good memories. You know what? I meet all the celebrities. You win at wrestling. That's that's really what that's really what this. All that's comes a really to. that's a really weird way to pivot that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, it is time for what you're watching, what you're reading, what you're listening to. Um, we have been, and will continue as long as you guys are posting it, um, talking about what some of you are rot, watching, <laughs> are watching, watching, reading, listening to. So this week, ooh, uh, last week we featured, uh, the one and only continuity expert, Fear of God historian, Steve Beckley. This week we are featuring fellow pod host, John Vinalas. Oh, John. Hey, So, John. John wanted to share that he has been reading the book called Oathbringer, which is mm. the third volume of a fantasy series called The Stormlight Archive. In John's assessment, it's an excellent series, which will probably be the next Wheel of Time, if not the next Game of Thrones. Those are bold words, John, which means it will prop itself up as a long-form, engaged, nuanced character study, only to distill itself down to just plot beats. But that's a whole other thing. (laughs) Um, The author of this series, the Stormlight Archive, has accomplished something rather remarkable in that all of the stories tie into an overarching narrative. Yet each series, and to a degree, even each book, can be enjoyed on its own. Thematically, this story in particular, uh, that of the Oathbringer, uh, has a lot to say about dealing with guilt and loss and trauma and how we're shaped by our choices and focuses on the journey rather than the destination because destiny is not a fixed point. Thank you, John, for sharing about the Earthbringer. Reed, have you ever heard of this series? I've heard of it. I've not read it yet. Um, might have heard of it. Uh, no, I think it was, uh, it might have been 
not only from John, but also from a friend of the show, J.R. Foresteros, I believe, mm. um, has referenced Oathbringer before. Um, not completely positive about that, but I feel it, it, it feels familiar that I've discussed with, uh, with friends in the podcasting arena about that before. Okay. Well, yep. I am unfamiliar with the Oathbringer series or Oathbringer, the Stormlight Archive series. Mm. Yeah. So I would, I'm, I have no commentary on that. Okay. Other than thank thank you, John. Uh, we should check John, that out. Yeah. John hosts fellow More Than One Lesson podcast, um, Two Geek Soup. I think I referenced this a while back, but I was on there recently uh, talking about Daredevil about two months ago. Indeed. Um, and I don't know when this is going to air, but I did have the pleasure of being on a conversation over there as well for Endgame. So that was fun. Ta-da! Uh, so thank, thank, thank you, John, for your offering, for your continued work in the pod sphere and letting me come on and hijack your show every <laughs> now and then. Reed, what are you watching, reading, and listening to? My so uh, before I dive, I was not expecting to talk about this, but before I dive into uh, what I'm actually watching, reading, and listening to, uh, old John's watching, reading, listening to put me in mind, you know, because he says Oathbringer could be the next Game of Thrones. Like, man, I'm very disappointed in this final season. And as this, as we're recording this, which is going to air several times afterwards, the uh, yeah. the the finale has not yet aired. But uh, but yeah, it's just uh, uh, yeah. This these fi- the final season has been. That's funny you say that because I was worried like fourteen oh eight we would come with divergent no, views. No, um, no, because now I, again, sort of <laughs> like fourteen. Wow. Um, I think I referenced this a, a few weeks ago on Creep Show when we talked about Game of Thrones season eight. Like, there are certain characters I really enjoy on that show. Um. And hopefully by the series end can still say I enjoy them. But I, I've never been like super emotional about Game of Thrones. It's it's an interesting story. It's 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 unimpeachable in terms of scope and scale. Um, but what Game of Thrones always impressed me with was its ability to really chart every curve of a character's journey mm. from worldview a to worldview b mm. and so what's just like that is what i love about that show in addition to a few key characters and they completely abandoned that oh my gosh season. i mean there's just no there's no tracking uh you know it, it's not even that none of it works or makes sense if you can take a three million foot view right it's just like the show was so expertly about the single, the the ten foot view. Mm. I don't know how we, we would do that, but the very close to the ground view for these characters' journeys, and it just does not care about that. Yeah, anymore. and I, I feel we don't have to get into too too many things about it, but I, I mean, I do feel that some of the characters, particularly characters, have to fulfill certain arcs they have to they they have to push certain buttons if they're going to be compelling characters you know one of the frustrating things about some of these people is that like they took them through uh, you'll probably know who i'm talking about when i say this they took they took at least one character through a tremendous journey only to basically land him back exactly where he was like when we first saw him uh so he's essentially learned very little learned you know next to nothing and uh and then there's another character that is well, and to be to be fair, Reed, the show is over, so we can we can be well, open about true. the okay. So stuff, yeah, but, so but yeah. basically, yeah, like you you send Jamie back to like 
just completely retcon or, you know, retrograde all of the stuff that he had been through, all of his character arcs that he'd been through through the the previous few seasons. Um, And then you have arguably your your biggest character uh, in the show. Well, I shouldn't say your biggest character, but like the character that everybody's supposed to root for. And all he all he's defined by is what he's not doing, like or what, you know, what he's right what he's not pursuing. I'm, I'm just like, I don't understand anything about what Jon Snow's doing. But she is my queen. I know, Reed. but I'm just like, well, but you don't really want her to be. Right. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't, yeah. Don't. So anyway, yeah, it's it's a lot of poor character work. So I don't know. As we're sitting here, maybe the finale blows us away. I doubt it at this point, but, I, but, yeah, but yeah. we'll see. Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? Which is funny because literally uh, we're recording the night after the next to last episode. Yeah. And two episodes of game of Thrones ago, I was like, Oh, this one, uh, you know, it was a little bit of return to form. Mm, and if this mm. is what the next two are going to be, this is exciting. And then after this most recent, thing, no, I, no, 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll watch it and I'll, cause you know, but, but really at this point, it's all about just like, okay, is the main question of the story who is on the Iron Throne? I just don't understand. Yeah, at this point. Uh, anyway, so thank you, John, for pivoting us into sub, uh, Sub-tweet. Game of Thrones um, but what I've been watching is something that I am pretty excited about. Now, um, the have you seen the film? I'm pretty sure you have not seen the TV show, but have you seen the film What We Do in the Shadows? Have you seen that film? Yes. Oh, yes. my goodness, I love that film so much. We should cover that. We should cover that soon, like... Maybe even cover it next. Uh, just you know, dropping a seed there. But uh, but honestly, like that film is so brilliant and so hysterical. Uh, the premise of the film and what I'm watching, reading, listening to is they have now made a TV version of that same concept. The film was about three roommate vampires, and they're basically in a a kind of a Parks and Rec office style mockumentary uh, form. They are sort of living their life, navigating through the day to day existence. Uh, as as roommates and everything, and it is it is absolutely hysterical. It's wonderful. Jermaine Clement, uh, Taika Waititi, and they are. Uh, it was. It's just. But that's a, the film version. That's the film version. Right, right. The TV version. Now, um, did Taika direct that? Uh, I, th- I believe he. I can't remember. Did not. I believe Jermaine Clement directed it. You know what? I'm gonna look yeah, it up because I'm I don't think that's right. But I'm gonna look it up and I'm gonna find out definitively. But Taika and Jermaine are both in it. Um, the, um, now the TV is developed and directed, uh, several episodes directed by Jermaine Clement. Um, uh, actually, no directors of the film are Jermaine Clement and Taika Waititi. (laughs) We were both right. Yeah. So there it is. (laughs) But, um, but they both, uh, craft episodes of the TV show. The TV show follows different characters. Here's what I love. The TV show follows different characters, same exact premise, uh, but they've infused, there's this one because three vampires, you know, just being roommates. Again, it's right. a, it's a kind of an office style comedy, and they have a fourth roommate. Um, well, technically, they have a fifth one, one of the vampires' familiars. But then they have a fourth roommate named Colin Robinson, and he is he's this completely normal looking guy, and he's a daywalker and everything like that. But he's like, no, I'm an emotional vampire, like or not an emotional vampire. He's a uh, he's a uh, a psychic vampire. Like he drains people with a nos information. And so throughout the run of the show, you see him just like walking up to people in the office and just saying these inane 
ridiculous trivial facts about different things and people just deflate in front of him like they just like they just fall over and they really <laughs> the tv show fully commits to he is a psychic wow. vampire and that's his his mode and the reason i got thrown for a second is because another character enters in who is an emotional vampire her name is ev get it emotional vampire and there's a scene where the two of them are competing in the office about how they're going to feed with people. And so you get like this poor person just typing away at his computer while meanwhile Colin Robinson walks up and be like, yeah, did you know that Venezuela is uh, is home to all kinds of breeds of whatever? And then meanwhile she ro- walks up like, my cat died. I need, I need some help because my cat... It's, it's pretty hysterical. The TV show yeah. so far has not quite hit uh, the, the solid punch that the film did for me, but it is quite funny. And I can't imagine fans of the film not enjoying the TV show because it's, it's the same creators. It is, you know, similarly toned, talented cast. It's very, it's very funny. I enjoy it. And in one episode, I won't spoil it, but in one episode, there are a number. And when I say a number, there are quite a few notable cameos connected to not only the previous film, but also just, vampire films in general and it's it's great it's really really great well you know i historically it would be hard for me to say i love every single thing that jermaine uh is attached to in all its various forms but the the concord fellas in general their Mm. sensibilities are just so hysterical to me yeah yeah and they're just that's just it's just classic awesome um Awesome. Well, thank you for what you do in the shadows, Reed. Um, <laughs> so what I have been listening to is, um, how do I even, so it's a podcast. Okay. Um, and I discovered this podcast because of a podcast I've referenced multiple times before that of why is this happening? So Chris Hayes featured a gentleman named Michael Lewis. I don't know if that name means anything to you, but he's the author. Moneyball? Yep. Author of Moneyball. Oh, yep. Uh, amongst big <clears throat> yep and various other books he he has a new one out i did not look up the name of it but that's what he's on why is this happening for and that conversation is great but what i'm uh pivoting to is um he has his own podcast called against the rules and oh, okay it's it'll annoy the crap out of you as a as a uh, a person of ambition in the creative field um on why is this happening? Chris Hayes is like, so so you have a podcast now. He's like, yeah, yeah. What you what you probably don't know is like between books. You know, I don't like to just start another book, uh, even though you know agents always want you to go right back into it. I, I don't really like doing that, so I like to do just you know I like to challenge myself. And I've written a bunch of screenplays and and <laughs> you know pi- wow. TV TV pilots between books. Uh, and they've sold, but nothing's ever gotten, you know, made it to film. Um, and so that's what this podcast is. And I'm listening to this thing like, oh my gosh. Wow. You know, like to have the intellectual and, and bandwidth to be able to do that kind of, uh, sure, you know, of course. between of course. major best selling books. I mean, I, I did, I was not familiar enough with his work, but Hayes refers to him as, you know, essentially the, the, um, most kind of noteworthy nonfiction American writer mm-hmm. living today. I mean, like he, he just has a lot of accolades, but regardless, he has a new podcast called Against the Rules. There's only about seven or so episodes, but it is fascinating. Mm. Um, uh, the description of the podcast in iTunes, it says, he takes a searing look at what's happened to fairness. 
in oh. financial markets, in newsrooms, basketball games, courts of law, and much more. And he asked, what is happening to a world where everyone loves to hate the referee? And I'll, mm. I'll just describe briefly the first episode, but he, he zooms in on the, on the NBA, um, which I don't know if you know, I'm, I'm rather adept at, but as the National Basketball <laughs> Association, it's, um, <laughs> I know you sports. and the sports. I know you yeah, and yeah, the yeah. sports. But he does this really fascinating sort of, um, dials in on that industry and talks about how because of the technology they're using currently, which is fascinating, and he describes it, refing in sports, specifically in this case basketball, has never been better. Like that, they, they have never had as consistent and unbiased of calls in really? the history of the game. And yet, the flip side of that, never have there been more, has there been more kind of hate leveled at the referee. Really? So, okay. As, as an entity in sports. And so he's using this, and it's fascinating, the pivot he makes. But that's, this is what the springboard for the whole series of the podcast is. He uses this as a pivot to say what happens when we no longer acknowledge the intermediary objective third party. Oh, wow. That does sound yeah. fascinating. That does sound yeah. fascinating. Um, but it's, I've listened to about three of them. They're all very interesting and insightful, a little depressing. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, really, you know, one of the episodes he talks about newsrooms and how they're the ombudsman. Did you know what this person did? No, I, no. I knew the, I knew the word, the ombudsman, but. Uh, in newsrooms, the ombudsman was, okay, Reed, you've submitted this story to me. It sounds like you're using a bit too much editorial or did you fact this, fact check this thoroughly? This goes through the ombudsman who is the objective third party oh, person wow. who has no skin in the game except to make sure you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's. That role in the industry is all but gone oh my which makes per gosh. which will make perfect sense yeah, to course. you based on where we are currently of course but he just identifies these places where and and i mean you know he he is dialing in on american society although maybe blow it out to just you know society in general but he he, he cites our current political landscape but he's using these slices of american life and saying we no longer are willing to imbue an objective third party with authority. And wow. what happens when that happens? Oh, that sounds fascinating. It's, I think I've said that is. four times in the last 30 minutes, but or like last three minutes. But yeah, that I'm going to have to check that podcast out. Anyway, so yeah, really and, and they're, like, they're like 40 minutes or so, but no, it's really fascinating. Uh, again. What's it called again? For, uh, against the Rules. Against the Rules. Um, with okay. Michael Lewis. Um, there's only like seven or so episodes, but... Anyway, you, you will enjoy it. Uh, I think our listeners who are thoughtful, discerning, intellectual individuals will enjoy it as well. Um, and that's been read another episode of What You Watching. <laughs> what You Smelling. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> what You Listening To. Oh, my gosh. What You Smelling. Read. Smellers the Feller. We are. We, what? <laughs> said Smellers the Feller. So we are at the end of a little four. I don't, I don't know, whatever. Um, a little <laughs> so bad. I love how you didn't even <laughs> didn't even acknowledge like, it. You were just like, you're just I just said. Silly. No, here's what's funny. It's like you asked me to repeat it, and then you were like. 
Because you're like, wait, what'd you say? And you're like, so we're in the middle of it. That was great. Oh, God, that was great. Yeah, yeah. Because it doesn't matter. (laughs) We need a referee. What are we in the middle of? We need an... I I think Steve Beckley is our ombudsman. He's our ombudsman, Even though we never... But we never submit anything to him. So maybe we should start doing that. (laughs) He's very very frustrated at how how these guys never come to me with... I'm sure he's got bandwidth for the things we would submit to him. (laughs) Um, So, Steve, is this a dumb joke or you think it'll land? (laughs) No, it's probably dumb. Don't say it. Now do it anyway. Um, So we, we are finishing a little almost middle of the year... Uh, sort of slice of our umbrella series, that of 19, mm-hmm. um, where we're dialing in specifically on some Stephen King material. The uh, I hesitate to use the word the lesser works, but you know, right, the less right. prominent, the less major landmark achievement works. Right. Um, we did Silver Bullet, we did Creep Show last week. <laughs> You 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 did fourteen oh eight. I don't know. You know. <laughs> I don't know what clearly, I did for that. But. Clearly, Cusack and Jackson didn't. You know. But um, <laughs> wow. But we are today. This is exciting to me. So we are today unpacking Uncle Stevie's shorts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're breaking them out of the suitcase, putting them in the drawer. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Um. So we are going to be uh, looking into Uncle Stevie's shorts. and <laughs> Don't. Don't. You just can't. <laughs> There's no way to do it. There's no way. There's anything no way you say, it. anything you say will be, this is Captain Innuendo is well, back with yeah. everything. Captain Innuendo. What we, what we um, mean, what we mean when we say that. What do we that. mean? Is we mean we are looking, uh, conceptually this is a little bit In different of an episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh man conceptually this is a bit of a different episode for us <laughs> yeah <laughs> because okay. what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking three specific i knew it was a bad stories. idea when you said we should name it this oh no i i knew it was a great idea this is exactly what i wanted i this is this is what I knew would happen. You're as you're as predictable as oh um, as the sunrise and as dependable. Um so Yeah. So but no, we're gonna be looking at three short stories of his. These particular three and the concept behind this is three that have not been made into formal official widespread adaptations. Um all three of these I think perhaps with the ex- uh actually I'm not sure if morality has been or not, but um I know that the man in the black suit, all that you love will be carried away, have both been adapted into several dollar babies. We've unpacked what dollar babies were before. I'll briefly recategorize as basically Stephen King has had a long-standing tradition of when aspiring filmmakers reach out to him for shorter material that is not currently licensed for a major adaptation, he will give them the rights, he will sell them the rights to make a film of it for one dollar. The only catches are they will not be able to submit their finished film for profit and he has to receive a copy of the finished film. Um, but it's it's a way to jumpstart, give some aspiring filmmakers some practice with, you know, strong material. Actually, but you're not Stephen saying those two have been actually adapted. They, you're just saying they've been optioned. No, they have they have been turned into multiple times have been turned into dollar babies. But uh, by the nature of dollar babies, because you can't 
distribute them for profit, they're very difficult to find. Occasionally, you might see oh. a, like a YouTube version of them or something like that. But like all that you love will be carried away has been done in at least six versions. I think the Man in the Black Suit has been done in at least a couple of versions. Um, so yeah, the, the, it's been optioned and adapted a few times, but I've never seen any film version of this because they've none of the three stories we're covering today um, have been made into major adaptations. But that's why conceptually, this is a little bit different for us. But honestly, I, I'll level with you, Nathan. I don't know how listeners, how our listeners are going to respond to an episode like this, but I was so eager and excited to talk about these stories and so excited for this particular episode. I mean, I'm just, I'm really thrilled to be having this conversation. I'm hopeful that our listeners will go along with the ride for us, that they'll seek out these stories, that they'll read them, that they'll engage it. Um, I hope they will. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm very, very excited to dive in. Well, how do you want to tackle this? So, like, um, no, we'll just go right ahead. <laughs> no, go ahead. Middle, no, no, middle, no, it's in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> oh, I, like you're one to talk. talk I mean, about listen, it. listen back. <laughs> Listen back to wow. the episodes wow. all the time. I'm literally okay. So then okay, Reed, okay, <laughs> okay, okay. Nathan chimes out. What that is is. <laughs> oh my lord! Wow, I'm gonna be. I'm. I'm tapping out the rest of this episode. It's like in a wrestling game, you know. It's like I'm just. That's how, I'm just you're like. You, that's what that feels like. You know, I don't you, want to do you, fi- you finally work your buttons in such a way that you get me in a stranglehold. So. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm out. I'm out. Oh my gosh, that's funny. No, sincerely. <laughs> now that you're taking a drink, I was going to offer you to, to, to say the thing. <laughs> oh man. So I, I don't have anything to say. I was just trying to propose how do you, how do you want to, what angle do you want to take on these? We could, I think generally we should reserve just broader thematic stuff. It, it's kind yeah, of like, yeah. I think, I think we, did we do this with Black Mirror? Like we we tackled the two episodes just content wise and then thematics. Um, I, I think I, so. I would yeah. I would suggest we probably do something similar here. But do you do you want to lead with one? Do you want to start with? Yeah, one? Yeah, uh, if you don't mind. Or do you want to just synop synopse them real quick? Yeah. Why don't we? Well, why don't we do this? Uh, basic basically exactly what you just said with a slight tweak. Um, why don't we go through the stories um, one at a time, and at, when we summarize them, then we can you know, give any sort of general thoughts about the piece for each one of those. And then after we've summarized all three, then we can dig into the broader themes that they each or all or one specifically said to us. So I'll start and then I'll let you introduce um, uh, one and then uh, maybe I'll wrap up. Uh, I'll start with the man in the black suit. That is my personal favorite of these three that we're covering the the premise in brief is basically just uh, the narrator Gary, not Billy, as I've so nope. recently learned. Um, the narrator Gary, uh, when he was a boy, there's no. In fact, there, in fact, there's nobody named Billy nobody in any named, of these yeah, stories. No, no, I don't know where I came up with that. I don't know. I don't either. You, well, you want to know something funny? What? I I listened to the story and made notes. Right. I wrote Billy when I wrote and it down. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. I wrote Billy when I wrote it down, but like what? But I verified you're you're correct. Just so the listeners are not in ambiguity, oh, like I knew that. Yeah, but I listened to it and still wrote down the narrator. That's odd, Billy. And isn't it? It's really strange. That's why I said That's, like maybe we're dealing with a Mandela, to, Mandela effect. Or a something. Mandela? <laughs> I don't That's, know that effect. Like a swollen Mandela, but no. <laughs> so <laughs> my shorts. <laughs> So, but no. So the narrator, whose name is Gary, definitively the name is Gary. Um, when he was a boy, he goes fishing one morning after running a brief errand for his father and encounters the devil himself out in the woods. 
Um, now, his brother, uh, Dan, had recently died from an allergic reaction to a bee sting. And so the devil, who has orange, fiery eyes, is haunting and tormenting Gary uh, in horrific detail. He starts by telling him that his mother has died from a bee sting the same way his brother did. Um, then he also uh, strongly threatens to basically eat Gary whole. Um, now, Gary narrowly escapes thanks to a brief distraction from a very large fish that he just caught. And uh, he runs into, while he's running away from the devil, he runs into his father, discovers, thankfully, that his mother is alive and well. And his father initially doesn't really believe the story. He doesn't tell him that he met the devil. He just says he met a scary man out in the in the woods. And uh, his father initially does not believe him. But they return to the site where Gary met him so that they can retrieve Gary's pole. And when he's out there, the, they see some discolored grass in the shape of, because at one point uh, he like chucks the fish at him and knocks the devil down. And where he fell, the grass is all distended and, and yellowed. And, uh, and so when the father sees that, he, of course, becomes very unsettled. And then they, they, well, because can I, yeah, I know yeah, you yeah. hate no, when I interrupt. No, no, can I throw something in? Is that <laughs> do I have permission to do that? Yes, you're fine. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Well, I don't, I don't know if you mentioned this, but, um, Gary, not Billy, does doze off by the fork yes, in the stream. Yes. And that becomes a talking point where the dad is convinced, okay, you, you just dozed off and you had a nightmare. Right. So exactly. that's, yeah. 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 But he, uh, yes, that's all, that's all correct. He, uh, but the dad, um, has a kind of an odd re, well, it's not an odd reaction. He has a more unsettled reaction when they go and they see the discolored grass. They, they throw away the, I guess tackle box is what it is because he says it smelled funny and then uh, they never speak of the incident again until this narrator now a much older man writes the story down for all of us so uh, that is the that is the summation of the man in the black suit this is the only short story that Stephen King has written that won the O. Henry award I, I believe that's the name of the award of it um Yes, it was the it won the World Fantasy Award and the O. Henry Award for Best Short Fiction. Uh, Stephen King hmm. is not often recognized by in critical circles. He's you know frequently lauded in popular circles, but in critical circles, he's re- more rarely recognized. Uh, but this is one of those rare stories that received a ton of objective critical praise, just for its basic structure. It's uh, it's a very tightly constructed, very simple uh, story that uh, packs a, a pretty effective punch. Uh, but that's the, yeah, that's the basic summation of it. How did you, yeah, what what thoughts do you have on this? I I like it. Um, I'm, I'm glancing at my, my notes here. Um, I mean, I referenced this on 1408 last week. Like, I did, thanks to you, have the good fortune of being able to listen to all of these in audio version, and and they they certainly didn't disappoint. And there's just something fun about that format. And I will say specifically of this one, the gentleman, I don't have the information in front of me of who the vocal performer is on this, Mm. but his specific uh, affectation for... Uh, the man in the black suit is is really oh it's so great is really is really creepy and effective but but no i mean i think in general king is a really excellent he clearly loves this format like mm. the short story format yeah um yeah. and he's really good at it and i i, I don't know i i don't i don't have a ton um i mean i've got a few lines i wrote down like mm. you know i smell gary's lemonade <laughs> you know, i'm just kidding um 
But like, I, I love the line that Gary, old Gary notes. He said it as he's recounting the story. Mm. He says, it's not, it's not belief I'm interested in, but freedom and writing can give me that or yep. give you that. Yep. Um, one really ominous line that he uses in reference to uh, the man in the black suits uh, stumbling upon him. It says that day I was either his errand or his luck. Um, That's a and I think great I, turn of phrase. Yeah, and I think just in general, this story as kind of a child's perception of evil uh, is mm. just really, just a really kind of effective. Yeah, no, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. As I said, it's my favorite of these three pieces, although I love all of them. Um, well, uh, let's, for brevity's sake, cause we'll, we'll come back to some of, I have a few thematic thoughts possibly to dive into with the man in the black suit, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Why don't you take us through one of the other two that we have? So yeah, the next one is, um, uh, and everything's eventual, just like man in the black suit. Um, and that is all that you love will be carried away. And this is probably one of the, uh, best distillations of, I mean, clearly you, you just referenced the accolade, the critical accolades man in the black suit received, but in terms of pure, just, uh, punch mm. and, 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 and almost there's, there's so little to this in terms yeah, of narrative, yeah. uh, narrative plotting or anything. Um, all that you love will be carried away. Put simply, um, is traveling salesman, you know, uh, uh feeling, uh, absent of meaning in his life is considering suicide and, yeah. Uh, and not just considering, but has planned it, you know, has, right, has right. gotten a hotel room in which he plans to take his own life and the ways that he reflects on that, on his life and, and sort of, uh, uniquely this little weird hobby he's developed over the course of his sales life of, of jotting down graffiti he encounters in, in various bathrooms and truck stops and, yeah. um, uh, the voices on the walls, he calls them. Which I think, is uh, yeah, great. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so but great. one of them is the phrase "all that you love will be carried away." Mm-hmm. Um, and I read "Everything's Eventual," goodness, ten or a dozen years ago at this point, and this short story, and 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 I think I could still hold this statement is is probably, if not top, in my top three King texts. Period. Oh I wow! Even um, big novels I, and everything, right? Yeah, well, I mean, that's it's easy to say when it's when it is so short. You know, it, it, there's there's it's a very precise work. Um, sure. Yeah. But part of it too is just the slight ambiguity because the 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 way the short resolves, you aren't totally sure what this person has chosen to do. Though, mm-hmm. like I think the bulk of King's oeuvre, um, mm-hmm. there's a very hopeful. Uh, sort of sheen on on how it resolves even right, though right. Nar- narratively you aren't 100 percent sure and right. i just love that i love uh and that would get into some thematic stuff for me but just you know i just love that aspect of the story this person searching for meaning sure thinking he ha- thinking he has none and possibly stumbling on some oh absolutely um i <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to make a huge prediction of this i'm certainly not going to telegraph that we have to but i think it, it, it is entirely possible we wanted to do an episode like this where we, you know, take a couple of short stories. I think it would have been easily possible to just build an entire multi-hour conversation around just this story because there's in in a story that takes about a half hour to read, it is so like you said packs such a punch. I I agree with you. I think this is one of my favorite one of my favorite king texts. I feel like it it is so sensitive 
And I think that's something that I always appreciate about King's less horror work. But this piece in dealing with this subject is so very sensitive and, dare I say, lovely in places. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and it's alarming that a story about this, where essentially a man who, by his words in the text, cannot go on living the way that he is living, finds such beauty in, and again, I, I risk pivoting, it, pivoting us into themes early as well, but finds such beauty in these words of strangers and uh, for, for which he has no faces or context or anything. It's just, it's a powerful, powerful piece. And um, if, you're, if, you, if you're of the rare variety of listener who would be like, well, I'm listening to this and I'll check these things out, but I'm not going to read all these stories. Like, if you only pick one of these to read, read All That You Love Will Be Carried Away. It's the briefest of them. It's, like I said, takes on average about 30 minutes to read. It is very, very brief and really lovely and powerful. And I think you will find yourself rewarded by, by checking it out. And I think, you know, again, I, I like all three of these at, at varying levels, but it's the it's the least high concept. Right. You know, it's, it's, right. A, it's a very direct <laughs> yeah. narrative. Um, but uh, but, you know, do you want to pivot to the last one and then we can kind yes. of just jump around and unpack? I was just yeah, I was just going to say that. So then the third story that we're covering is um, this is one that I'm really, to be honest, torn about my feelings on. And I'll explain why in a second. Um, so the third story is morality. The I will put my cards on the table that I think the premise of morality borders on the stupid. Honestly, I know that's a bold word, but <laughs> the premise of morality borders on stupidity. But I am so enamored with this story because of what it has to say about morality. So I'm it's sure. it's one of those things that I'm torn because I'm like, man, King is making some powerful and astute observations about human nature, our approach to morality, the limitations of our own ability to navigate our own moral choices. Um, I just wish the actual sort of plot of the story felt a little it, bit more it believable. Re- <laughs> it, it requires a lot of buy-in. It does. It does. But I, I think you would echo this. Like The, the, the punch of it is, is almost worth how high of a buy-in it requires. I agree with that. No, I do agree with yeah. that. And to the degree that I was torn about whether or not we should cover it because it's, you know, because that buy-in is so big. The premise, uh, so that I can get right down to it, there's a a, a woman, a former uh, nurse, I believe, but her name is Nora. She works now as kind of a live-in nurse, um, and she's caring for a caregiver for uh, a retired minister who had suffered a stroke. And whilst, when the story opens this minister has basically proposed to her something pretty outrageous. He says, I'm going to pay you $200,000 if you will basically perform this sin. Uh, That's how he pitches it to her. I want to, he said, I've, in my ministry, have never committed the major sins that I railed against, and so I want to perpetrate one. If you will help me do this, I will pay you a sum of $200,000. This is where what we're talking about, the buy-in is... It, it it's not that I don't understand what he's after. It's just the the specific sin he wants her to commit is so insanely specific. She he she he wants her to um, physically assault. I say physically, not you know because this word has some um, you know connotations to it in this climate. He wants her to basically punch or physically you know assault a young child and have somebody video it, and that's what he wants her to do. 
um, doesn't want her to like you know do hospital version damage but wants her to like attack this innocent that's really what it's getting at he wants to to sort of attack innocence and video it and he wants to you know experience what perpetrating that would feel like and he'll pay her two hundred thousand dollars to do this so she and her husband wrestle with that for like a long night and they decide to do it they execute the plan the plan essentially goes off without a hitch um, they successfully acquire the videotape of the event uh, they get their money they get everything about it like everybody this this hideous heinous thing that they have planned everybody gets what they want and then in the aftermath of this their spiritual and uh, basically their inner moral core just withers away and degrades and their lives are ultimately uh, quite quite ruined after that um, as a result and that's the the general well, wouldn't you say what wouldn't you say it's primarily her though I mean like he Chad isn't you know experiences the the negative effect of of her but I yeah it seems like you could say that her she's she's the one who who undergoes the most inner destruction you know see kind of. I would say I would say you're correct and I th- and I think you are correct but I think part of that is just because she's our narrator uh, well, there's an omniscient narrator, but I think it's because it's kind of seen from her perspective. Because like Chad makes that comment towards the end where he says, uh, "My book would have been great if not for you." You know, so you could argue that it's like, like you said, he's experiencing the reciprocal effect, the the, sure, the ripple sure. effect of her. But right. you know, he's an aspiring writer, and he succeeds in getting his book, uh, you know, written and everything. But then he's like, "It would have been great if not for you." And then there's some ambiguity on whether or not the minister that put them up to it eventually, you know, takes his own life or not. There is some a bit of ambiguity about that in the story, but the story leads you to believe that he could no longer bear the burden of what he had perpetrated and ended his life as a result which is funny which is funny because um the 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 story is constructed in such a way that you are in you as the reader are in the dark for a decent portion once he has put the challenge to her right it's a it's a while before you know what he's asked her to do yeah like halfway Um, through the story (laughs) yeah even though even though she's clearly aware we just don't aren't aren't privy to that and and almost part of it is because by the time it reveals it, because I'd read all of these, yeah. um, but it'd been a while. And morality, I was the most fuzzy on once the the sort of circumstances revealed themselves. Like, okay, I, I, I remember some sort of moral conflict posed by someone else. And, but I couldn't remember what she has been asked to do. And so <laughs> then, like, she colors her hair. She yeah. goes through all these these physical links to distance herself from her true, you know, bearing. And then when it's like punching a kid, which, hear me, don't go punch a kid, sure. But <laughs> it's If like, you needed that PSA. It, well, they put so much gravity <laughs> right, on right. the front end. You know, Reverend Winnie is talking about, because that's what they call him, mm-hmm. uh, He's talking about double sins and sin by proxy, and right, I just want right. to sin, and oh you know, I want you to carry out my sin, and and then you're in the dark, and then when it finally reveals, like, oh well, I mean, you know, it's not good to like punch a kid in the face, but you know, <laughs> like I, I feel the urge to a lot, and I don't know that I'd be like <laughs> wow. I, my inner my inner self would erode if it happened one time, but maybe not. I don't know, you know. Yeah, well, and um, that's, and- it's like it's like Chris Rock says of OJ is like, I wouldn't have done it. But I understand, wow. you know, 
<laughs> well, and that's the thing. We this this will be when we have our little thematic conversation about this story because that that to me is what I find ultimately very fascinating about the story. And I I don't think it's intentional on the part of of King, but it really. I walk away from the story feeling like it really does not matter what the act was. What matters is the deliberate choice to do it. And to me, that's the that's sort of the the, the crux of the whole piece is and granted, yes, the the perpetrated sin is it's on the silly side that a minister would want this. It's on the silly side that a minister would yeah. you know desire like yeah. you know a sin of any nature and like pay so much money to have this happen. Um, so that's the big buy-in that we keep. It's talking like about. at least at least make it like saucy or something. You know? it's, like, <laughs> right. it's like this. This let's I, I, they probably identify how old he is. This seventy-year-old guy's like I got two hundred grand sitting in a lockbox right, somewhere. If you'll right. go if you'll go punch a child in the face, like, um, <laughs> right. okay. And so um, <laughs> which child? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, I've got some names, you know, like, but anyway. Well, but one element that that I don't know if you're um, omitting on purpose, but is is the the button on the story, which which to me, oh, I was omitting is... that on purpose. Okay, I'm sorry. No, but you don't have to apologize for it. We can. Why don't we? Because we've summarized the three. Do you want? I don't think our conversation about morality will be extended. You want to? You want to just kind of start there and and go ahead and introduce that button. Well, sure, I, I, but I don't want to take. If you want to run with thematics, I was just going to illustrate like why that story is valuable. Yeah, go is, ahead. Is, yeah. is 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 yes? A lot of the narrative requires some sort of like ah, this is kind of silly, but sure, yeah, yeah. There's this really lovely part because she she totally, as Reed alluded to, in the aftermath of this. The punch heard around the world. She, um, you know, she she just engages all this self destructive behavior. She cheats on him multiple times. Um, she just becomes angry and 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 prone to violent behavior. Right. Um, Violence and intimacy, which is yes. kind of upsetting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and so, towards the end of the story, I don't remember why. Oh, does she check it out from a library? Like how does she? Um, she find, come? I don't think we're told where. No, uh, it's in a bookstore. She finds uh, okay. She finds it in an old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, early in the story, as you're learning the sort of topography of the Reverend's study, where the challenge is made, or where the, or where he asks her to do this deed, she is observing his uh, books and his collection of books. One of which is called "On the Basis of Morality." Mm. So. Then once the story has resolved and the husband has filed for divorce or vice versa, they have, they are divorced. Their marriage is over. The Reverend is dead. Um, she's ruined her own life in a bookstore. She stumbles upon this book on the basis of morality and buys it, uh, and reads it. And it's this really amazing sort of tag on the end of this admittedly far-fetched story where she reads this whole book. And it says she comes away disappointed because there was little in it that she didn't already know. Oh, no so way. wonderful. Yeah, it's great. It's it great because you're like, wow. For whatever sort of sideways glance I'll cast on the send-up, that's a really, really strong button on the end of that. Oh, absolutely. And that's that's been my... Again, that was, that was a huge factor in the power of the story and, and the impetus to wanting to discuss it on the on the pod because 
there's such a powerful observation in the the element of choice to these moral decisions. This story, in a way, is making a pretty bold statement of, yeah, moral choice, moral fiber, is really probably not a matter of you, you know, necessarily learning to do the right thing so much as it is choosing to do the right thing. And uh, that's, you know, that's maybe taking the story to places where, uh, you know, diluting the power of that last line, because what we essentially have is we essentially have someone who's like, hmm, let me let me find some philosophical treatise or let me find some uh, fascinating thing about the nature of humanity or whatever. But it's like ultimately she's left with, yeah, I I knew this was wrong and I did it like right. I, I knew this was a despicable thing and I did it. And that is so I mean, that's that is why I mean, again, what he wants to do is a little silly. But that's why he, the, the, the minister is sort of uh, driven to this. He's like, I want to do this wrong thing. I want to. And it's powerful to me, they hit on it a couple of times, that the character, uh, Nora, does not believe in sin. She says it a couple of times, that she believes in wrongdoing, but she doesn't believe in sin as a, uh, as a thing, as, a, as sort of a, a valid element of the human spirit. She does not acknowledge uh, the effect or presence of sin. And it is just really powerful to me, uh, not from a religious or theological perspective, but just as, as an observer of my own human character of like, yeah, she's, she's watched her life basically unravel, her inner being unravel. And ultimately at the end, she's like, yeah, I, I already knew everything that I <laughs> needed to know for this to not have gone this way and still just willfully marched right into it. And that is a, a, a very haunting and powerful statement about the capacity for humans to do despicable things. King himself, I believe, has said that the story emerged from his own wrestlings with, you know, just, just moral decisions. He, it says, um, King revealed that uh, the story was inspired by issues of moral philosophy in his own life back from when he was a struggling student and would occasionally shoplift or he would write other students' essays to make ends meet and get paid for that. You know, that was an academic offense at the time. And so he was wrestling with these conditions in which someone would, you know, possibly make decisions that they knew were morally compromising and what that effect might do to the overall you know, to your overall being and spirit. And I think that is the power of this, of this particular story in general. Well, and I, I, I think what's interesting too, what it's making me think of, and I, I, again, I don't want to overlay something that isn't there per se, but it makes me think of the Old Testament prophets and how so much of their message can be distilled down to live right. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I think it's fascinating this way that you know and and Nora is is our sort of fictionalized version of this but so often we want either some sort of justification or you know okay this thing and and I'm thinking of you know getting Nora's headspace okay this book let me let me just see what this guy's all about let me see what this okay on the basis of morality like you know uh, there is a grain of appeal towards okay this thing's gonna tell me it's, mm. it's gonna it's gonna give me some new insight into how to 
either abandon these practices or absolve myself of this stuff or, right. you know, recontextualize sort of who I am. And yet she reads this and, and we could we can enter ourselves into the story uh, on, on any number of angles, really, um, in terms of just things we've done personally or, or thought patterns or whatever. Um, she, she engages this text that is just the essence of what we kind of mm, mm-hmm. already have as part of our DNA, generally speaking. Now, I'm not right, trying right. to suggest that, that God doesn't play a role in sort of imprint of good. I don't mean that of per course, se, but just like, you know, like, and, 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 and honestly, I'm, I'm hesitant to say you just don't do X or Y because I don't think it's that, that simple. Um, right, I do right. think it's as simple as there is a fundamental instinct towards moral compass. Now, mm-hmm. yes, there's exceptions to every rule. I'm not acknowledge. I'm, I'm acknowledging the exceptions just to say that's not what we're interested in the moment because that's not what the text sure, is after. Of course, other than to simply say there's a way we go about life that we know. <laughs> right. Right. Of course. You know, and 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 that having that sort of integrity and and and. You know, I mean, because because in many ways, the act she engages in is pretty mild in terms of the spectrum of sin possibility. Mm-hmm. And yet, even in that mildness, it still ruins her because she yeah, absolutely yeah. knew this is just not part of that. It's not sprung from that common good. Anyway, right. Right. This is not a thing that should be done. Like, right. And again, and again, it it. it if there's one sort of justification I can make for the for the admittedly absurd premise, it's yeah, it is essentially fundamentally attacking the innocent in a way that, as he says when he pitches it to her, is not going to get you thrown in jail or or anything like that. Like it's not it's not really going to get you into that much trouble. Uh, I mean, I think it obviously it obviously would had she been caught. Uh, she obviously would absolutely pay uh, a debt to society, if you will, either through some prison time or a large fine or something. But yeah, it's it, it's the relative convincing that she gives to herself that what I'm doing is an innocuous thing. And she it's it's fascinating to me in the story that it's this act of violence that then connects to some some violence in her own heart, a a tendency towards masochism in her life. And uh, I don't know, there's there's all kinds of different, we don't have to camp out here too much because I actually want to uh, move on to the other couple stories, but um, I do think it's fascinating to take a step back and look at ourselves and say, yes, there is a, there is a common good, as you put it, a common understanding of uh, what would, and there are elements of morality that are more complicated, but I think there sure. are some fundamentals that would say this would be a good thing to contribute to or a good thing to avoid uh, in its opposite. And we so frequently, to our own peril, deny those standards that we inherently sort of, you know, I do believe the scripture. The scriptures lay out that the Lord has set eternity in the hearts of men. I'm not going to over-spiritualize the, the full element of it, but as a personal belief of myself, I do believe that, as we've said that there is there is an imprint. Uh, we've both acknowledged there are exceptions, but there is an a, there is a basic fundamental imprint of common good, common morality, um, and I think those things are key. I think they're important, and uh, yeah, we again do ourselves a tremendous disservice when we blatantly ignore them and abandon them uh, and transgress in ways that we know will do us and our spirits no good. 
as a as a pivot, uh, just because I think I have a feeling that both of us are going to really camp out on all that you love will be carried away. Do you mind if I hit and run with something on the man in the black suit? I mean, you can certainly contribute to it, but go right ahead, Fisher boy. Nice, nice, nice. Um, so I just wanted to say, like, one of the things I love about this story, it coincidentally happens to. Uh, I'm not going to unpack because it would make ton of sense to do that here I'm not gonna un- unpack every dotted i and cross t of my theology of evil my theology of the devil or anything like that but my understanding of the spirit of malevolence uh what we might deem the powers and principalities my understanding of their behavior in the world around us and their behavior and influence in our lives is pretty similar though it did not come from this story um, it, it, this story resonates a lot of the common themes that I would see as such. For instance, his main power against Gary is he taunts, he teases, he intimidates, he threatens, he uh, deceives. Spews, deceives, spews lies about the condition. Um, and that's really the primary power that he holds over Gary in that moment is his capacity to instill fear and despair and dread in him. And that is, you know, while the story certainly leaves you with the implication that had Gary not successfully run away, there might have been some physical harm to him. All that we know for complete certain is that he spends a tremendous, like he doesn't just come right up on him and grab him, which he certainly could have done because Gary was enthralled with that bee. He does not just immediately come after him he spends some psychological time trying to fill him with despair. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, he, he sort of, at very initial immediate encounter, positions himself as benevolent. Not benevolent, but, you know, like, he's the one who scares the bee away, right? He kills the bee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Claps, the, claps his hands and, and right, kills right. the bee. Right, right. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, yes. But point being... Uh, uh, Gary wakes up startled and, and scared of this bee. He he gets rid of it, but because I can't remember exactly what his initial line of dialogue is to him. In other words, it, does it does it does the immediate encounter start as dangerous and malevolent, or is there a, a sort of wooing? Uh, there's not. Uh, there's what you could sort of consider a a twisted version of wooing. He leads with your mother's dead. Like oh, so, okay. so he so Never he leads yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he leads with your mother's dead and then when he is proposing that he's going to consume Gary, he basically uh says, But hey, you'll go to heaven and it'll be quick and it'll all be over and done with, you know, and then you'll mm-hmm. spare them all of this torment and pain and everything. So it is a twisted sort of justification, if you will. But uh but no, does not lead with um you know, like an angel of light kind of thing. He very much is. Well, I nef- didn't say that. <laughs> no, no, no. I know, but he's but he's, he's nefarious from sure. the from the beginning. Um, but the other element of the story that stands out to me, and this again, if you have thoughts, I'd welcome them. But this is just sort of a drive by. Um, this one of the ways that I contextualize my theological understanding of evil is as appetite. That's informed hmm. by several things I see in the scripture. It's informed by some. Uh, extraneous writings that I've read from theologians and philosophers. And so my understanding of uh, malevolence and evil and powers and principalities as as insatiable appetite that they they 
constantly must must feed upon joy upon good they must constantly like consume that and so it was incredibly fascinating to me and of course the final line of the man in the black suit is what if he finds me again and what if and suppose he is still hungry you know so it really stood out to me i was like wow this is a really that's i think one of the reasons why it resonates with me so much just as a simple singular story is because it it pretty effectively represents kind of my general understanding and my general theological perspective on if evil exists and is real which i believe it is and 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 does exist then how does it operate in the world and i i contextualize that as i see it operating as appetite if we view sure wholeness and goodness and what i will call the presence of the lord if we view that as ultimate fulfillment Plenty. Then, yeah. then I that's view the, the came to me. yeah, plenty. That's a great word. Then what I view the the oppose opposing force is as lack, ultimate pervasive lack, and so that 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 insatiable hunger, that insatiable appetite, must constantly sort of feed upon its up, upon the joys and the goodness and everything, and it and it must distort those things for its own consumptive needs, and so that's that's why coming out of this story that's just something that really and i love the line in the story where and this again speaks to the appetite where this is something gary says in reflecting on it he says all the truths of the moral world fall to ruin before its hunger which Hmm. is a a powerful line as it were but again again it gets to that uh you know your your footing and your standing uh as a being of integrity as a being of of moral uh, sobriety in the world uh, would perhaps depend upon a plentiful spirit, a plentiful heart, um, and that it is in fact the decaying nature of these powers and principalities that that generate appetite and generate uh, lack and need, and that that insatiable hunger. If you look at uh, a common text of spirituality, you look at like the seven deadly sins. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them are due to insatiable appetites like envy or greed or lust or gluttony. They are all, uh, you know, consumptive by nature, and that is the decay that we must ourselves indict ourselves when we see our appetites becoming unbridled and recognize the power. I will say this, and maybe this is a final button, but again, I haven't let you speak, so if you have thoughts, I'd welcome them that in ourselves when we see such appetites that we would interrogate and indict them that they not become out of control that they not come to a place where they would basically drag us into choices like we talked about with morality where we know better but we're being dragged into this by an insatiable degree of appetite um and uh again if you are a believer as i am in uh, spiritual malevolence principalities and their existence in the world around us uh, then may be pushed or pulled in that direction by forces that have such insatiable appetites. And that's, that's one of the big things that just sort of resonated with me about, about this story. Well, and you could argue too that this is just coming to me as you're uh, extrapolating. You know, I, I'm pretty sure Gary references, old man Gary references the fact of his never having shared this story and ah, yeah, yeah. You, know, you could you could by your sort of framework there establish that you know there was not a physical visceral consuming but he had robbed him of this peace 
you know, that, that might mm-hmm. otherwise have been there for, for the entirety of his life, really. Um, right. Anyway. No, so yeah. no. I, yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. So, yeah. Well, me, um, can, yeah do you care if we go wandered, wander to the truck stop? Yeah, let's go. Let's go, get, let's get go our, to the get Motel our, 6. Yeah, get our for, for room 1408. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's funny. Like, I, I didn't actually write down any any thematic posings because honestly there's this is a weird story to me because I read when I initially read it years ago it had a strong impact on me well in the ensuing years I I am now a salesperson who has yeah you know uh creative ambition (laughs) (laughs) right right, and listening to this story I was like oh my god um this didn't have this level of of real world resonance to me then, <laughs> um, and I guess I just want to open the door. Um, again, I didn't I didn't write any of these thoughts down, so it's more just kind of posing questions. I don't know if these conversations happen between you and your spouse, but the only reason I, I want to give deference there is is we have some peers whom I bring this up to or did once and it was like no we don't really talk about this i was like oh okay well (laughs) i guess we're just we're just weird (laughs) but like i i can happily say on uh, you know you would know this as my dear friend and 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 listeners who may hear this and be like there's a lot of resonance here like i've never i actually shouldn't say this glibly but thankfully i've never had any sort of suicidal thoughts or anything like that Mm. so like on on that level the story doesn't resonate but but on the level of uh, meaning making and mm. identity and what we assign value to, you know, I don't want to exclude uh, women from this conversation or from this line of thought because I guess I'm just not privy to, but I know stereotypically, historically, uh, men assign more identity to their vocation uh in a way that is probably not healthy um and and a lot of that is probably cultural but Mm -hmm. but maybe not exclusively cultural and and so i guess i just wanted to kind of poke around at that conversation some because honestly i i couldn't remember you and i um i know both of us aspirationally are, are kind of in the in the creative world you know of yeah. mm-hmm. varying sort of practical degrees but one it had been a while since that conversation had been engaged but two just i don't know like like i joke on the podcast every now and then, oh, i'm 240 this year and i'm doing this and, and you know is that the full fruition of and 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 this wrestling sometimes of so I'm taking the notion of all that you love will be carried away of this idea of how we assign identity and value for ourselves and and the the things we practically put our hands to versus yeah. should they should they have the meaning we tend to assign to them because the the, the reason I love the end of this story and, and and I do truly love it is I don't know if I don't know if it registered for you this way but. You know, if if we break the story up into fifths, at like the four fifths mark is when he has this really blip of an idea. Uh, when he's standing out in the field, considering throwing this notebook out into this field, so that if he does kill himself in 
the hotel room, the cops won't find it and thus think right. he's a, weir- a weirdo because he has a kid and he's got a wife and yeah. and, and yeah. this is just his little his little hobby that he's done. But if someone reads the weird graffiti he's written down over the years, it's like, oh, what what is this guy about? So he's so he's trying to throw this book out into this field where it won't be found. And at the four fifths mark, again using this sort of structure or breakdown, he has this moment of inspiration for what how the story will start. Mm. And he says, and I think actually the phrase, I wrote this down, so I think it's correct or verbatim from it. It says, how you would have to start the book. But then it moves into just the, the rest of the story. And I just love this moment because that's the moment, I think, where he where he decides, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to take my own life. Like, like he has this moment of real inspiration of like, Hey, how you would have to start this book. If you're going to write this book about this graffiti stuff right, is like, right. is like this. And it's this real moment of inspiration for the character of like, Oh, oh wait a minute. You know, mm-hmm. but, but I, I guess at the same time, I want to be sensitive. I'm just rattling off here. So you're fine. Trying, trying to throw the door wide here of like, I do think culturally we've, we've harmed ourselves, uh, particularly as men, uh, for the level of identity we assign to vocation. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet in the same breath, as I just congratulated this character on finding this moment of inspiration, it's like, well, am I also saying, look at you go, you can do this, lead this creative life too. And now you can have meaning. Like, you see what I'm saying? The, oh, the, yeah. the, the, yeah, the, yeah, the right. tension there of like, well, if you don't accomplish X or Y, that's aspirational, did you really have meaning, versus the capacity, and this is the challenge, right? The capacity to view the sum of the parts of your life as meaning in themselves. Right, right. As, as meaningful in themselves. I don't know, I'm just kind of riffing here, so I really well, don't it, have any notes. So here's what's fascinating. I don't know how intentional this is. I don't know what, uh, I don't know if what I'm about to articulate is on the exact same wavelength or if it's a, 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 a parallel wavelength. But what I wrote down that's fascinating to me about this story is how you keep using the word meaning. Sure. The word I wrote down was interpretation because I don't think it's insignificant that here's this man wrestling with these things and what he collects are phrases of graffiti that are located on, you know, mile marker signs, located in bathroom stalls, you know, just these little places along the way that he's stumbled upon these these statements, but there's no context for them. There's not, and, mm. and he wrestles mm. at one point with the, <laughs> the poopy doopy you so loopy line, uh-huh. and in the story, he says, he was fascinated by poopy and loopy have I E and then bam, you get a Y with loopy or uh, poopy and doopy have I E and then you get a Y with loopy. And he spends three sentences there saying, you know, it could just be ignorance on the part of the writer, but I'd like to think that there was something intentional about it. And so what stuck out to me in this particular um, encounter with the story is all of these things are, are open for interpretation, some of them so direct that they really can only be interpreted one way, but then the title of the story, All Mm -hmm. That You Love Will Be Carried Away, is one of those pieces of graffiti that he collected, and he part of his real struggle, as you already alluded to, part of his real struggle with whether or not people find his body 
and this book is that they will deem him crazy. And he says they'll they'll read the last line as a suicide note. And he says right. simply because it's the last line. And so this we're talking about you and, and and I don't want to get uh, too far afield from what you're talking about about the connection with identity and meaning in our vocation or even our creative endeavors. And then the, at the same time, that feels like what this story is all about is the meaning of language, the meaning of things. He says, um, I forget exactly the full sentence, but he says about this story that he's also a little afraid to write that book because he says the telling would hurt. And there's something about verbalizing certain things and, and adding context or trying to contextualize these uh, big grandiose feelings or these big grandiose thoughts that can be terribly intimidating. It can be really, really difficult. There is a beauty and a power to walking that journey out, but it, there's also a tremendous fear because what if you say, what if you get it wrong? What if you get your interpretation wrong? What if that's not what it means? And you asked earlier, and I never uh, answered, like whether or not you know, we have these kind of conversations in my household. Ironically, it is uh, something of a recurring conversation uh, recently about the stickiness of meaning, the, the complication of meaning. You could be completely crystal clear about something that you have said, and you fully understand what you meant by that. To someone else, even an intimate friend or spouse or a family member, they have heard your words, they've heard them clearly, but that does not automatically guarantee that they will assign the same meaning to them to which you fully understand them to mean. Sure. And that's the, I mean, obviously we're getting into the, the complication of communication and everything, but so then... But, uh, I'm sorry. No, 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 you go ahead. Well, I, I mean, I don't want to cut you off if, you, if you've got some more thoughts you want to unpack. Um, I'm kind of just exploring right now, so I'll, okay. I'll tag it back in if something really grabs me. Well, I mean, you know, you just referenced others' interpretation, and I, I, I think I want to steer us back using what you're at here, like uh, a therapist, you might call them mine at some point, gave, imparted some really rich wisdom, and that's effectively that we make our own meaning. Which, which was not meant to be this like worship of self idea. It was simply to say, we have the power to imbue meaning into scenarios. And I, I always yes. think about yes. bone tomahawk, you know, we're mm -hmm. going to make sure this yeah. has meaning. Like is a thing just um, purely if cause and effect, or am I going to assign some meaning to this? That's going to help me live a richer life. Right. And a minute ago you used the word interpretation and, and you, you pivoted a little bit of a different direction, but I don't know that where I'm going to go with this, you would disagree with it at all. But to me, ignore or don't, don't camp out so much on the quote unquote semantics aspect as much as just this character, Alfie was finding these little nuggets of other people's life. You know, like mm -hmm. like this, just the little scant. They 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 mean nothing. Right, right, right. I mean, they they, yeah, they mean yeah. nothing. He is trying to assign some 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 objective meaning to well, what did Reed intend when he wrote this thing down? Now, what it seems to be by the end of the story, and this is why I say you kind of have to ignore the interpretation of others because by the end of the story, he has decided, 
or it seems, the suggestion is made that he has decided, I'm going to pull together. I'm going to examine the nooks and crannies of, of my life. Or, or, you know, we can take that for our own self here. Examine the nooks and crannies of our life. And I'm going to fashion meaning there. Mm-hmm. You know, because, because at a certain point, there is just a mechanical nature to how we engage our day-to-day. Right. That can feel meaningless at times. Um, and, and this is maybe taking the conversation a step further, but just like the importance to be able to assign meaning. I think, I think often, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, I think often we wait for the signal of what meaning is to be found as opposed to, you know what, I'm going to choose to view this particular thing. That doesn't mean you assign grandiosity to it necessarily. It doesn't right. mean this is the Lord's hand from down on high pointing to that sweater instead of that sweater. Like right. It just means right. there is value in a meaningful life, and that feels real hyper-spiritual, but it also just means... I. I have a lot of sort of say in the meaning I want to attach to it. I don't, I don't right. No, I'm no, just no. Gonna I'm going to reference. No, I'm going to reference something that the the text actually says because that is a difficult thing to do. It's a difficult thing to accomplish. Like what you're scratching. Which, which at part? A, which part? What the um uh. I'm going to assign meaning. I'm going to grasp mm-hmm. hold of what mm-hmm. meaning. That's a difficult thing to do. Uh, I wrote this line down. Alfie says at one point, "A shot in the mouth is easier than any living change." Mm, and yeah. and that's his struggle. His struggle is not uh, whether or not he would be. But again, it gets back to he said he would write that book, but the telling would hurt. It's like ultimately you come up to the place where you have to decide to do the work, bear the burden, endure the pain of navigating through the making of meaning, mm-hmm. and 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 that is a uh, because it is difficult. I mean, people people can superstitiously assign whatever significance they want to to any event or choice that they've made or that anybody else has made. But what we're scratching at, I think, is something a bit broader and deeper in that uh, we're actually diving into the the substance of what your present, how your presence in the world has changed the world fundamentally. Now, whether that be, we, we constantly, to get back to what you were saying earlier about uh, particularly, uh, and, and I don't want to exclude women from this condition either, but I do think culturally, for decades, there's there have been cultural stigmas built around gender in both directions. Um, the one I'm scratching at right now is the cultural stigma that a man is what he does. And so whether or not he can make him of himself a success right. is tied into his value as as a person. And that's something that I do think is um you know, there are echoes of it to to all to everyone, but I do think that that is something particularly that uh men come up against a lot. It's like uh I hear so many comments about like yeah, you're you're not a husband and father if you don't provide for your family. Like there, there's a lot of those those kinds of language and statements uh, going around. I hear my peers wrestle with it when they struggle with their own intrinsic value to 
their family's presence and their family's life. And they assign sometimes uh, a dollar value. I've had uh, dear friends who have wrestled with depression and uh, talk talk somewhat openly about that difficulty of like looking at a life insurance policy and being like, well, this is, I, I, it pains me to think about the times more than once that a friend of mine has said, like, honestly, I'm wrestling with whether or not my life insurance to my family would be of more value to them than my presence here. And that's a, that's a painful, yes, it's a painful, painful condition to arrive at in your own heart and mind to think that, that, that we're talking about assigning meaning um, to view yourself in such a light. But that's, I think, part of, I don't want to get back into the superficial, but that's part of the power of this story, you know, is that that's what it's wrestling with. You know, you, you can you can steer me back to the shore if this is just wading into the wrong depths here. But because what I'm wrestling with, even as you say that, and, and, I, and I feel like so much of my daily life these days is occupied with sort of trying to birth myself into this version of living. But like here in here in the example you just made, like mm, this is going to sound like, oh, Nathan's indicting the church again. And I'm not exactly doing that, but I think there's also just a real way we've, we've made ourselves observers of a, religious life Hmm. and not participants um like like for instance you you just talked about this insurance anecdote like the inability and and i would say this is what i was trying to scratch out just then in terms of church is like how how have we how is it possible that we have so unequipped ourselves or ill-equipped ourselves to be owners of our own meaning Mm. does that make sense like yeah yeah yeah, like and you know someone might hear this and be like oh you know nathan's a self-help kind of guy like what that's not what i'm scratching at but i am saying like depression and and suicidal tendencies like this is not just a quote-unquote the world type of dilemma this is like rampant regardless and and you either are sitting there at night assessing the the insurance policy uh, for for what your physical value to your loved ones is versus your monetary value, mm. or you or you're able to interpret poopy doopy as some part of a larger tapestry because you've figured out you've equipped yourself through you know either some version of discipline, some version of embodying Christ likeness, some version of you know, uh, cognizance of human relationship to us to, to fashion meaning in your present life. And, and, and it feels like those things are really far apart from each other. A lot of times, Mm. like, like the, the bridge, the chasm is wide between, and, and many of us, if not at the actual state of I'm assessing this insurance policy, or at least, going through days where it's like, damn, you know, this is, uh, wow, man, that's just another clock in, clock out kind of day, another clock in, clock out kind of week, another clock in, clock out kind of month. And this starts to add up into just, you know, just, just uh, a a very rote, uninspired and uninspiring type of existence. Um, Right. right. And I guess, I guess what I was trying to articulate with um, 
observing versus participating is we keep waiting for something external to inspire, to yes. challenge, yes. to 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 motivate. And mm-hmm. I suck at self-motivation sometimes, so I'm not like <laughs> championing myself here whatsoever, but it's like what do we there it feels like as people who are meant to be bearers and architects of meaning in what can often be a meaningless world why is it so hard and I, and I'm I don't mean that rhetorically I mean like why do we have such a hard time is it because we've bought in to this cultural path of our identity is defined by those things we do mm. I, I, I would say there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of validity to that argument you know we we have subconsciously and in many ways consciously bought into well i mean my goodness i'm in a sales environment where production is the word of the day right you know right. and 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 maybe you'd echo that a little bit i don't know but like it takes active internal resistance to not let yourself buy in to mm-hmm. that and so then the counterpoint then is okay well how do we how do how do we individually invest enough awareness of our own meaning and worth so that we can be because i i, I do believe ultimately my ability to look at a, a brother or a sister who's hurting or not and say you have meaning and you are valuable like that is the essence of Christ likeness, right? I'm going to subsume myself so that you know value is present in 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 your very being, like mm. not not because of the thing you do or don't do. Um, I don't, I don't know. I'm just well. Hey, buddy. Hey. Um, I think also, you, and you just brushed up against it right there. Is that I think sometimes you ask why it's so hard. I think it's sometimes because we are not satisfied with what's at our, we're not content with what is at our hand. Hmm. It is not enough. To, the, the, the current culture champions people who, okay, I've had a complicated relationship with the film in my life. I've had a complicated relationship with the film Dead Poets Society. Have you ever seen the film Dead Poets Society? It's yes, it's been too long to know exactly where you're going to go. So, um I'm not that's not what we're talking about, so I'm just I'm only going to to brush against it, but a big theme of that film is seize the day, make your lives extraordinary. Oh, lackey my lackey, right? Oh, lackey my lackey. Yes, exactly. So the reason I've had a complicated relationship with that is because there are characters in the film it's, and I still find it a very beautiful film. It's I, I I like it a lot. It has its um it has its detractors out there, but I like it a lot. One of my one of my complications with it is that there are characters who take that, and because uh, they are somewhat unsuccessful and inhibited at doing their version of make your lives extraordinary, uh, they therefore then see no further meaning in their life. And I do think it is doesn't ex- what doesn't a character commit suicide? In yes, it? A, that, a, yeah. yes, a character does commit suicide, and. And it is because they find tremendous uh, joy in a thing that they were then definitively told they will no longer be allowed to do. Gotcha. Um, and so 
What then happens as I'm sort of reflecting on this, and ref- and again, we get back to it because that's that's Alfie's struggle. Alfie's struggle is, uh, you know, a, a swift exit uh, rather than try to find meaning. You asked the question, and this is what I'm getting back to and why I thought of Dead Poet Society, is the the flip side of that is if I, at my age, find my... Which is 70, I am seventy years old. Um, find my find my significance in what I have or have not accomplished, and I think the hard, the really hard part about it is that so many of us, if we are doing the day to day work of living our lives to the fullest good that we can possibly achieve, uh, maybe not even the fullest. None of us ever achieves the fullest. Sure. To to. To a sense of good, just I am going to do what I can in the world to be kind and to be good. And if we are doing that in the day-to-day existence uh, as we navigate our world, um, there are so many influences that we don't we don't know. We ultimately don't know uh, what value we do or don't bring to the people and the world around us. We don't know because we're so ill-equipped to really understand ourselves and understand the inner impact to other people that we bring. And I think the despair comes in when you feel like even your best is insufficient and insignificant. And I think that part of what you find when you're thinking about trying to infuse meaning and trying to develop and and assign meaning to yourself and to what you have done, the reality is we're just not we're just not ultimately going to know how many creative artists died with their work. I mean, they don't know. There are artists that were tremendously popular at the time, and their work is in relative obscurity right now. There are artists who died uh, penniless and and critically derided that are now celebrated and championed as pioneers. And and so you just you just never really fully know exactly how it's all going to come about. And I think we all are kind of aware that we will never really know, but the struggle that we come up against is we're constantly wanting to know. I want to know. And the reason that we try to achieve success, financial success is because, Hey, I can assign something. Money is a cold numeric value. I can insight. What, what do we call it? Our net worth. What is your net worth? And and they're talking about financial terms when they say, oh, well, you make this much money. Um, well, if we're talking about worth and value, well, those are those are financial terms. And meaning so quickly gets, syn- uh, I don't know the term tense of this, but it becomes a synonym of meaning, or uh, meaning becomes a synonym of value and worth. And so then you get into cold calculated numbers instead of something that's a bit more abstract and saying like, well, my, my value to my son doesn't have a dollar figure on it. My value to my wife doesn't have a dollar figure on it. But it is so easy for me to get wrapped up in that being the pass or fail measurement of my position to my family. I know it's, I know it's wrong to do that, but. Well, and, and I think another just term to throw in there too is success. You know, it's like like yeah. metric of, of success. Uh, one s- semantic distinction here that I want to throw out, and, and you know, if, if we need to head towards the runway, we can, but I'm enjoying the conversation. Like, you're bringing up currency or, or money in general 
as measure of worth, which again is going to feed back into this thing we referenced a couple times in terms of productivity and cultural and identity and that sort of thing. Like notice I actually was going to go this direction and then your money convers- money note kind of reaffirmed this. You know, the, the notion of uh, finding money versus making money. No one, mm-hmm. no one, no one of success, worldly speaking, ever is like, oh, I found, you know, <laughs> I found, I found a hundred grand last year. Like, well, no, I mean, you, you made a hundred right. grand last right, year. Right, right, like, right, right. but what is the language we use for meaning? Like, find meaning in this. Like, it's external. It's a thing we just stumble into. No, I would say, you know, in in the money conversation, the ownership lies in the making of, right? Uh, like, like right, I right. I am a architect of my success in this regard. I, I have ownership, mm-hmm. you know, and so like I think so. I think somehow we are taught, conditioned, acculturated to want to find meaning as though it is this right right abstract out there that is ever elusive and Mm -hmm. more or less ever unattainable versus flip it around like i'm gonna make meaning i'm going Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. not even like i'm gonna choose that this is gonna have meaning though maybe so like as in oh this is super painful Uh, i guess i'll this nathan said i gotta make some meaning this well (laughs) maybe but but the point being is like that is, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not like the perfect practitioner of this, but like that is how to develop a full and rich life, right? A yeah. full, rich, and maybe faithful life is yeah. Yeah. to make meaning. Like we, yeah. we, you, you aren't going to find meaning. Like it, it is so outside of our capacity to, like I can say you and I have, have a, a, a deep, uh, long lasting friendship. And so you may say a thing that like is super inspiring to me and hopefully vice versa at times, but like it's not the burden is not on you to imbue meaning to me. Right. Right. Like I have to sort of take the, the snatches of life and of encounter and of relational dynamic and, and, and fuse these things together Mm -hmm. um, into a meaningful experience. But, but, but only through it sounds like you know someone would be like oh you're just ignoring god i'm not i'm i'm simply saying like i think i think too often we even view god as this out there other mm. you know that that we're just going to find and we're going to do this and, and as opposed to like an an inter an a rich inner life that helps us navigate and define and interpret and and thus ultimately make meaning i'm sorry what? No, you just no, threw no, your no, head no. back. I did, I did, because I just uh, a thought connected that I've been struggling to connect. Your language about find versus make meaning, and it's like, um, and I'm certainly not going to get, not going to approach the subject of God with find versus make. Sure. But I will say this: that a lot of times there is the conversation in spiritual circles around, well, what does God, uh, what's God's plan for me? Like, what is right. that? And we right. treat it, and, and I've addressed this before on the pod, about, like, we treat it with as if it's some sort of, like, puzzle we have to solve. Right. As if he has left Da Vinci Code-level clues, and we have to run all over Paris to try to figure out exactly what he wants us to do with our life. Like, that's the that's the 
um, abstract sort of version of what so many people struggling and wrestling with faith is like, oh, well, what's, you know, what's God's intention for me here? What's God's intention for me there? And we forget the scripture that says, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. Mm-hmm. And, and so then we're talking about this finding versus making thing. It's like, well, uh, what is my position in God's kingdom or in God's care? Well, I would say that his love, affection, and his uh, his adoration, his intentions for you to live in the full awareness of his presence, that that's the same for everybody. And then that there is a tremendous amount in my theology, there's a tremendous amount of choice that he has given us for exactly how we're going to craft out our niche in the larger scheme of things. And maybe some people that connects to certain talents or gifts. Uh, there's definitely a biblical precedent to to say that, yeah, he, he has endowed certain things that we can then use or not use to, to certain impact or certain effect. But I do think there's just a prominent choice that is left to us to say, as we're talking about here, no, I'm, I'm not going to find God's plan, and I certainly wouldn't be pretentious enough to say I'm going to make it, but there is an intentionality. What we're talking about is intentionality. I'm mm-hmm. not going to be accidental with the choices that I make. I'm going to be intentional with them. I'm not going to be pulled along with whatever the wave of the moment is. I am instead going to be deliberate. I occasionally am given the opportunity to uh, officiate weddings uh, from time to time. And uh, I uh, usually pride myself on whatever marry, whatever couple I'm going to uh, sanctify their marriage uh, that I write a personalized ceremony for them. But there is one phrase that I implement into every single one that I've done. It's, it's maybe not the only sentence that I use time and again, but it's the only one that I use every single time. And that's I encourage them to be deliberately good to each other. And I use that phrase and would use it here in the sense of that is I wake up tomorrow and I can choose. I'm going to be deliberate with my good, not just, oh, yeah, I'm a guy and I just run through my life and make these choices or whatever, you know, not being coincidental or accidental with it, but deliberate and intentional. And I think those are the ways that we can make and craft importance, value, worth, meaning, all of those kinds of things. And I think, and this is through my head back, I think that it is in those places that, I believe it was Frederick Beekner that described, you would know, oh, crafter of the birth show, 10 years plus. I believe it was him who talked about the shepherds on the hill, and that when they saw the angels, it was not as if they just sort of burst onto the scene, but as if they had always been there, and then suddenly mm-hmm. they came into focus. Mm-hmm. And I largely do see, and I've expressed in other conversations to people about who are trying to find like God's purposes and God's plans for them, and I was like, a lot of times you just set about something intentionally, deliberately, as unto the Lord, and then get about two years down the road and realize like, oh my goodness, you look back and suddenly you look back and see all of this presence everywhere Mm, that mm. you were blind to along the way. And so when we talk about something that uh, others may bristle at, the language, when we talk about making meaning or making God's purposes, I, I think there is a certain craft and intentionality that as you set about doing what you do as unto the Lord, and this is a big statement, but it resonates in my spirit in this moment as true and factual, that as you set about doing what you do as unto the Lord, I do think 
there is an arrival, an emergence, a realization, a revelation that begins to form itself in those day-to-day choices. That then as you go through, some who don't believe in God may say that you're simply fashioning uh, God out of the things that you're day-to-day choosing. I, who do believe in God and do believe that God's presence is saturating the whole of creation, that you then, as you as you proceed in that, it, it, it comes alive. It comes awake to you. Not that it was never there before, not that it was, uh, you know, that you invented it, but that you were, uh, it, it's like, and I think I have referenced this on the pod before as well. It's like Jacob laying down his head and having the dream of the angels walking up and down the ladder and waking up and saying that beautiful phrase, one of my favorite phrases in the scriptures, um, surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. And I think that is something that we come to as we intentionally navigate these things, that we suddenly come to a place to where the scales fall from our eyes and we are suddenly aware of a presence that I believe has been there all along, but we were so blind and deaf to it for whatever reasons, the fog of sin, the cloud of culture, whatever uh, assignment you want to give to that, we were unaware of it. And then as we craft and make meaning, as we craft and make these intentional choices, uh, then, you know, things emerge. Uh, and, and maybe we are standing there, like, to bring it back to the story, maybe we are standing there uh, like Alfie, waiting to see whether the wind will drop or not, and waiting to see what this all adds up to. But you make a choice, and then you wait and see. And I think, I think there is a beauty to the fact that there is hope in that, hey, you make this choice and wait and see, and perhaps on the other side of that night, a long night, on the other side of that uh, tumultuous morning, uh, you will find that the Lord is there and that He, uh, that you were unaware of, of how long He's been there and how intentional He has been in your life in trying to guide and steer and, uh, and get there. And I think that's how, in my mind, in this conversation, I'm uniting this finding and making, that there is a sense of making it, that you make these intentional choice, and then along that way, uh, again, your eyesight, clears up and you find something that was there all along hmm. but you but you never realized it and um i don't know so, in this so you just make it till you find it make like yeah it. you f- yeah make it till you find it i like that i'll i'll start using that instead of fake it till you make it i'll just you make it till you find it and so that's, that's good i, I mean like i like it that's pretty, I, i'm not being facetious that's I like pretty it. orthodox yeah I like, it. I like it yeah i like it a lot dude I was excited for this conversation, and for me, listeners, I hope you feel the same way. But for me, this conversation delivered. Like, I this is the kind of conversation I was looking forward. <laughs> we made to it having, yeah. And then we found it. And then we found it. Um. So, um. So yeah, you 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 good? You good to, <sighs> to send us home? So I'm good. Uh, I think we said this up top. We are gonna. Uh, it would be a bit complicated and and perhaps a bit. Uh, uh, facetious to engage the fog meter on these three stories, but I think we can fairly ask of each other the question, would we, would we recommend these stories? The answer is right up at the top of the episode. Um, we both wholeheartedly recommend that you seek out all three of these stories because they are very well worth your time. There are audiobook versions of these. If you're not inclined to read, uh, they are all narrated by uh, wonderful performers and uh yeah they they are well worth your seeking out and your time uh to and engage I, with this I would be I would be curious too from listeners you know uh one were you familiar with these but more than that like 
are there King short stories that we didn't reference today that, you, you know, you're like, Hey, I, I, I love this particular one. Not that we'll necessarily cover it per se, but I'm just curious what other people's kind of favorites right. are. Cause we haven't said it. And, and this is not a, a launch pad into a further conversation. We're winding down definitively, but um, these three are with the, ex- the mild exception of the man in the black suit, which has some horrific elements. Uh, these are not really horror pieces, uh, particularly all you love will be carried away is not one. And I think that's something that gets lost a little bit. There are absolutely stories that we could cover and maybe will eventually cover digging into like his just straightforward horror pieces. But I think, uh, part of the power that King brings to the the blank page is his capacity to unpack these commonalities within human nature, and uh, and I think that's well on display here. So yeah, let us know if you've heard of these, if there are other stories either of this ilk or of his more horrific variety that you would um, you know be interested in us checking out or talking about or just referencing for your own self. We'll read it on the pod. Maybe a. Hey, Make make that. Let's let's get some let's get some let's get some Maybe king. Maybe I. <laughs> Maybe I. Um, I just. That's okay. Uh, it's okay, it just, Fisher boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys very very much. Next week we have not uh, formally decided where we are going to be going. Um, so stay tuned to social media feeds to determine uh, to find out where we are going to be covering uh, what we are going to be covering next. Uh, but Nathan. Thank Reed. you so much. This has been good. Having this conversation, I, I really it. enjoyed it. Really enjoyed yeah. this. I like this idea of maybe the the shorter works in big lumps together. Like if we can find other avenues through which to do that, maybe not even just King. That would that would that would be great. I definitely uh, enjoyed these more than fourteen oh eight the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Well, listeners, thank you so much. Uh, As always, uh, Nathan, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. And uh, we will catch you guys next time. We'll see you next time, guys. Bye. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. You can continue this conversation in a variety of ways. On Twitter, at The Fear of God. On Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast. You can like or follow us on Facebook or join the Fear of God Facebook discussion group. You can follow Reed on Twitter at Reed Lackey and Nathan at the Nathan Rouse. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com or visit morethanonelesson.com to comment on the official episode posts. And lastly, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.